If you don't know, Christmas is almost here. If you haven't done your shopping, congratulations. You're a person of adventure. You like to wait till the last minute, till those last minute deals come out. Over the course of the last several weeks, we've been thinking about the historical accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ. We started two weeks ago, and we taught and we thought about the ministry of the shepherds and the angels in proclaiming uh, the good news that Jesus is born. Last week, we thought about and uh, talked about the ministry and work of God through these foreign nobles, the wise men, as we call them, uh, as they came, uh, out-of-place nobles worshiping an out-of-place King. And this morning, as we continue looking at the historical account and biblical account of the birth of Jesus Christ, we're going to be thinking in particular about Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph. I don't know if you know this, but the United States, among other countries around the world, provides immense uh, need and uh, aid to countries that are in need all over the world. Grain and rice and food and money are shipped to countries that are under crisis all over the world. You maybe see pictures of these giant pallets of food supplies being dropped on countries in South America and Africa and Asia. And um, one of the things we've become aware of, if you've watched the news more than five minutes, you may not know this, but in some of these countries where our aid, along with the aid from other uh, countries goes, local authorities will skim off the top of the aid, either the money or the food. They'll skim off the top, either that or they'll take all of the aid and dole it out based on their own intentions. I mean, that kind of a, isn't that kind of aggravating? He's sending food overseas, and you would hope that it gets to the people who have the most need. The intention is that this aid would get to people who are hungry and starving or need money to start businesses or to begin farming communities, but instead, in some cases, local authorities gather up all this aid, and they use it to retain power and to uh, control the populace. The intention is to help locals to get on their feet, but the result is the enriching of local power brokers. And you want to say to these local authorities, listen, it's not about your power and control. It's about helping the local people get back on their feet, uh, to feed them, to save them from starvation or disease. You've completely missed the point. Well, this morning, in the same way as we look at the account of Mary and Joseph, I want to say, tell you that oftentimes we've completely missed the point of Mary and Joseph. So I'm going to tell you what it's not about. Are you ready? It's not about a baby. It's not two dreamy-eyed young kids beginning their journey of love and life together, and now, upon happenstance, they bear a child. It's not about a baby, as it turns out. And we're going to discover that the people most profoundly aware that their role in the story of Christ is, has nothing to do with them merely having a baby. It's about something much bigger than that. The role of Mary and Joseph... In the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah is not about them having a baby. Now, this is difficult for us to get our heads around because all of our celebratory artistry around Christmas times have Mary and Joseph in a loving and warm embrace with a baby. Ah, we've had a baby. We're going to discover they were not embracing because they had a baby. We'll get to that. I'm not going to tell you the answer yet. Okay, it's not about a baby. We read Matthew chapter 1, but turn in your Bible over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to start with Mary here. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It's not about a baby for Mary. Luke chapter 1, beginning verse 26. When, when Mary's uh, cousin uh, Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent his angel, Gabriel. This guy was a head honcho in the angel guild. 
He sent Gabriel to Mary in Nazareth, and he had a message for her. This is what the angel said to Mary, verse 28. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was troubled at the words of this angel and wondered what kind of greeting that might be. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary said, how will this be? I'm a virgin. That's a valid question, I think. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will empower you and overshadow you, and the Holy One to be born of you will be called the Son of God. It's not about a baby, Mary. It is about the Son of God coming upon the world. It's not about a baby. It's about God's kingdom now invading the kingdom of man by the power of God upon her. Gabriel comes to her and says, Mary, you are one who is highly favored. Another way of saying this, Mary, you are one who is a recipient of grace. That word favored there is the word we use for grace. She's, Mary, you are one who is graced with the work of God in your life. He is not saying, Mary, you have done something fantastic to deserve this honor. He is saying, Mary, God has shown his grace to you by bestowing upon you the joy and honor of carrying in your body the King of kings, Lord of lords. And she is told by the angel Gabriel, his name will be called Jesus. He will be king. Notice what the angel says. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will... Uh, give him the throne of his father David. Could you imagine Mary's thoughts at this? She's going to have a baby, and he's going to be the king who sits on the throne of David. Mary wasn't just told she will have a baby. Mary was told she will have the king. The king will be born to her. And she asks, how will this be? I'm a virgin. She's engaged to Joseph. That means they were betrothed. It was a very official sort of thing. They weren't married, so they weren't supposed to uh, come together sexually, and they had not, according to the Scripture. And so to her, it didn't make any sense that she could have a child, seeing as how she had uh, never had sexual relations with a man. And she said, how will this be? And the angel says, listen, no big deal. The Holy Spirit will uh, make the baby in you. And we must not have in our minds these sort of very crass pagan things. We might think of Greek gods who came down from whatever mountain they have. They got a mountain? Probably. And they had relations with women, and they had half-man, half-gods. It's ridiculous. It's a perversion of the gospel story, which is God, through holiness and righteousness, empowered her to be conceived with a child who was both God, fully God and, and fully man. And we shouldn't read into it sort of crass pagan stories that we may be familiar with. How will this be? Think of the story of the people of God. Think of the story, all the way back to the book of Genesis. God shows up to Abraham. Hey, Abraham, I want to make you into a great nation. Abraham says, great, I'm 99. And God, I don't know if you took health in middle school. <laughs> Some things that you might want to be aware of. And, and God promised Abraham, over and over again, you will be with a child. And at one time, God made this promise, and Sarah was in her tent, and she starts laughing out loud. Okay, 
Okay, God, that's fine. And God, of course, knows when we're laughing at him. You will have child, and Abraham and, and Sarah can't figure out how this is going to work, so they figure out, well, we may as well have a servant have Abraham's child, since God clearly doesn't understand anything about biology. And that doesn't work out so well. So Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, have a son. Because old age or barrenness have no bearing on God accomplishing his purposes. They have a son named Isaac. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son Isaac, who is the son of the covenant, the covenant I have promised you, and take him to a mountain and kill him as a sacrifice to me. Abraham, by this time, has figured out that God knows what to do, and it won't be a problem. The book of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking. He knew that Isaac was the son of the covenant, and if he were to kill Isaac, that God would have to raise him from the dead because he was the son of the covenant. So he had no problem. He takes Isaac up to the mountain and is preparing the sacrifice, and, and he asked his father, hey, Dad, on the way there, oh, where's the ram that we might offer a sacrifice? And Abraham says these words, God himself will provide a sacrifice. You're going to die if God doesn't show up, Isaac, is another way of reading that. And they got up there, and Isaac, on this sacrificial altar, to die a death he should not have had to pay, and God provided for him a sacrifice in the thicket. And God said, do not kill your son, Abraham. And God provided a sacrifice. Story after story in the Old Testament of barrenness and destruction and dysfunction in the family of God, in the tribe of Israel, and, and the people of God. And over and over again, it was no problem for God to keep his people going and to keep the covenant line going. Why? Because God said the king is coming. How will this be? Mary asks. And God said, have you not been reading history for the last 2,000 years. No big deal. The king is coming. Satan hasn't been able to stop it up to this point, and he's not going to be able to stop it now. Thankfully, Mary didn't help God along. The Holy Spirit empowered her, and she became pregnant with Jesus the king. If you would have asked Mary if she was having a baby, I suspect she would have said yes, but he's more than a baby. Mary would have said, I'm having the king. The king is coming. The one we have been waiting for, the one that the prophet Isaiah has foretold, the one that God promised to Abraham would bless all of the nations. He is coming. He is here. He's in my womb. The king is coming. How do we know this is Mary's perspective? Turn the page in your Bible, or maybe it's on the same page in, in my Bible. I have to turn the page. Or slide up on your device, if that's your... Mary's song, we often call it the Magnificat, in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. It's worth reading, so I'm going to read it. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of my humble state... Or, excuse me, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary's song is a glorification of who God is and the mighty power of God that he has been exercising through his people for all generations. God is mighty. God is kingly. His people can rely on him, and his mighty, noble, kingly acts are now going to continue in Jesus himself, who she is carrying. It's interesting what she didn't write in her Magnificat. She didn't write, blessed is me, because I'm having a baby. God, may you bless him with many children. God, may you bless him with much wealth when he becomes older. God, may you bless him with power and significance in the world when he grows up. God, may you bless him by getting him into the best preschool in Nazareth. And after that, because of the preschool resume, may you bless him by getting him into an Ivy League school in college. Because preschool and Ivy League, somehow those two are connected. God, may you bless him with a good job. Notice how she doesn't pray any of these things. These things as we are anticipating having children. These are all the things we as parents are wondering about. What will they do? Will they, will they marry? Will they have children? Will they have a good job? Will they avoid some of the mistakes we have made? I think it's interesting, as a mother carrying a child, she prays none of these things. She says, God, you, you've been hitting home runs for 2,000 years, and you're about to hit another one. Praise God, the king is coming. She understood probably better than anyone, it's not about her baby. It's about the king who has showed up for his people. Mary, I think, understood her place in redemption history. She understood that God has been using his people to bring about his purposes to save all of mankind, those who would put their faith in God. And she sees and understands she is one piece of the puzzle of God bringing redemption to lost sinners. From Sarah, who was too old to have a baby, she had been married too long to have a baby, to Mary, who wasn't married enough to have a baby. Through all of these Trials and tribulation, God says, I will send you a redeemer. I will send you one who will give you the salvation you need, salvation from your sins and the death that his, it has brought to the world. And Mary said, I, I see my place in this, in this story. God, bring your king that I might be saved. God, bring your king that the world might receive him who will bring redemption and forgiveness of sins. God, bring that kingdom which is finally a kingdom of redeemed people where all the brokenness of the world is outlawed and only wholeness is brought in. What a great king. Mary understood it's not about a baby. It's about God's kingdom. And it has invaded the world, which has fallen apart because of her disobedience. Something we need to understand about this kingdom, though, it's a different kind of kingdom than most kingdoms. And now if you'll turn back to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at exactly what kind of kingdom this is. 
can't find Matthew. Where's it at? First book of the New Testament. Okay, I found it. Matthew chapter 1. Let's pick up back with our friend Joseph. This is a different kind of kingdom. Let's understand. Joseph understands something. If Mary understands this isn't about a baby, it's about God's kingdom. Joseph, we're going to discover, says and understands it's not about a baby, a son. It's about a savior. Joseph, engaged to Mary, discovers that she is pregnant. We don't know if she told him if she was pregnant, or over time, he said, you know, Mary, I don't know how to say this, because when's the appropriate time, guys, to ask a woman if she's pregnant? (laughs) After she's given birth, correct. (laughs) The answer will be no, but you will be saved a lot of discomfort. But something brought it to Joseph's attention, who knows what it was, but he realized and understood that, that she was pregnant and they were engaged, but they had never come together. But, but it was a, a marriage, of, in some senses, we don't have this kind of engagement nowadays, but it's a very official sort of thing. Uh, if she, were to have, he, she or he were to have relations during that betrothal period, uh, it was uh, considered adultery against your spouse. Uh, if during the betrothal period one of the couple passed away, if, say, Joseph would have died, she would be considered a widow. Uh, so it's, it's very official, and, and he had to go through an official sort of a deal to, to divorce her. He couldn't just sort of break it off, you know, take back his class ring or whatever the kids did back then. He would have had to officially do it, and he had sort of had a couple of options. He could divorce her very publicly and disgrace her, and uh, he did have to go through the, the ceremony, but he decided, you know what, I can't marry her because she has been unfaithful. She's obviously pregnant, which obviously means, you know, she's had sex with somebody. I mean, Joseph, at least, in the story, understands biology, if no one else does, right? And so he determined he was a righteous man, and that is he had scruples and a conscience. He couldn't marry an unfaithful woman. At the same time, he didn't want to disgrace her, so he was going to go quietly. You would get two witnesses, which one would include a priest, and you would sort of do a ceremony. It would break it off, and it would minimize the amount of disgrace that she would face. So he determined in his mind to do this, and an angel came to him and said, "Uh, Joseph, no, 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 bad idea. We have to understand something here. Joseph's role in the story and the history of the birth of Christ could not be more critical. We sort of see... Joseph sometimes in the, in, in the story of the birth of Christ is sort of uh, just an accessory. It's like Mary. She has a nice handbag and a shawl and Joseph. It all comes It's a package deal. But Joseph's role in the story of the birth of Christ could not be more critical. And so the angel wants Joseph to stay in this. In fact, Joseph needs to stay in this, and I want you to understand Why? Because at the end of the day, he understands it to the detriment of his own reputation. So he comes to Joseph, the angel, and he says, Joseph, and he's having a dream, but it's, it's a real uh, encounter with an angel nonetheless. He says, I want you to understand, uh, Mary has not sh- been shown any infidelity to you or to God. Uh, the baby that is in her is the result of the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen, I want you to read something again with me. Look down at verse uh, 20 and 21. This is what the angel says. Joseph, son of David. What did he call him? Son of David. Joseph, in the line of the king. Joseph, son of the king. 
I need you to understand, uh, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what's in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give her, she will give birth to a son, and listen, this is critically important. You are to give him the name Jesus. Who named Jesus? Joseph did. Mary in the NIV says you are to give him the name, but it's uh, better translated, his name is to be called, because the naming of Jesus was to be done by Joseph. Joseph is the one who has given him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. God is going to be with us, the angel is saying. All this took place. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God will be with us and he will save us from our sins. You are to name him Savior, Jesus, Joseph. Another way of saying this, Joseph He's your son. Joseph, you need to take Jesus as your son. Why does Joseph need to take Jesus as his son? The royal line passes through the father. The father is the one who carries the covenant of the kingdom. The covenant of David's throne comes through Joseph. Joseph has to take Jesus as his son. You name him Jesus because you are to be his father. In Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out to God the Father, and he says, Abba, Father, Dad, Father, if it's possible, could we avoid this crucifixion thing? But if not, not my will be done, but yours be done. Jesus cries out to his Father, Dad, in a very intimate term, Abba, very intimate and close term, Abba, Abba Father, Dad, do we really have to do this? Russell Moore, a theologian, and scholar helps us understand this a little bit better. In Jesus, being named by Joseph, Joseph adopted Jesus as his son. Think about this. Jesus called Joseph Abba long before he called the father Abba. Because that was his dad. Joseph was the one who showed him how to cut a straight line on a piece of wood. Joseph was the one who picked him up in the shop floor when he'd smashed his finger. Joseph was the one who had the line of King David, and Joseph took Jesus as his own son. Imagine this, knowing he would never serve as his true father because he was the son of God. But Jesus, Joseph understood the baby, even in the womb, that he was to name Savior of the world, that he had a role to play and had nothing to do with him having a son to throw a baseball with after school. That he could root down the field running for a touchdown, that he could brag about to his buddies at the shop. This was about his role in redemption history and Jesus was the Savior of the world. It's more about a baby. It's more than just a baby. It's about a Savior. Russell Moore also makes this comment in his book, saying, Joseph's adoption of Jesus was necessary for our salvation because Jesus had to sit on the throne of David. If Joseph walked out of that scene and tells the angel to take a hike, Jesus doesn't have the credentials to sit on the throne of David. Joseph adopts David so you and I can be saved today. When we read this story about Joseph thinking about divorcing his wife, 
the, the hairs on the back of our neck should stand up and a cold sweat go down and say, Joseph, don't do it. We need you, man. Stay in there. Because we need a king who can redeem us from our sin and a king who can sit on the throne of David so that the kingdom of God can invade with all righteousness. Joseph, understanding what was at stake, had decided to save his wife beforehand some disgrace. Instead, he marries her, and what does that mean? Instead of of avoiding disgrace for Mary, he says, okay, God, disgrace us all. Because now Joseph has married a pregnant woman. What do you think the chatter around Nazareth was like? You ever walked into a room and the voices go down? That means they're talking about you if you didn't know that. That happened a lot to Joseph. Joseph now understands the salvation of the redeemed people of God relies on him adopting this son that he might be the king on David's throne and he might serve as savior and king of all who are redeemed. And so he says, fine God, that's great. Then disgrace us all. We will take the disgrace that he might come and save us from our sins. It's not about a baby. It's about God's kingdom. It's not about a baby. It's about a savior. I want to turn one last place. If you'll turn with me over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, there's an interesting story of a gentleman named Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. You say, why'd they call him Simeon? Well, it's because that was his name. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What would, would console Israel? Israel needed a king and a savior. Israel needed a king to deliver them from their enemies. Israel needed a king to deliver a savior to deliver them from their sins. Gee, I wish there was a, a king and a savior on the scene. Mary and Joseph understood it was more than a baby. It was God's kingdom and God's salvation. And Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before seeing the Christ. I don't know how the Holy Spirit revealed that to him, but it was revealed to him in his old age that he would not die before he saw the Lord Christ, the consolation of Israel. And one day he was out shopping, probably Christmas time, getting some last-minute Christmas shopping done, and he was moved by the Spirit to go to the temple. When the parents, that is Mary and Joseph, brought the child Jesus to do for him the custom the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, and he praised God, and this is what he said. Verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory, excuse me, and for glory to your people Israel. So here's this man, this old man, Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and then the baby comes in, moved by the Holy Spirit, he takes Jesus in his arms, and he prays a prayer that ought not to be prayed in the temple courts. Can you imagine this prayer? He probably prayed it real quiet, right? 
A light for revelation to the Gentiles, right in the middle of the temple. Salvation has come. A light for revelation to the Gentiles as well as glory for Israel. But here is a new kind of king, a one who has come to be king of the world, not merely of Israel on David's throne. He has come to re- once again rule all of creation and a savior who has come not to just merely forgive sins of Jewish folks, but to bring salvation to all who would receive it. He is a light. He is salvation. He is the king. He is the one who brings consolation. He's not just a baby laying in a manger next to two starstruck teenagers. It's not about a baby. It's about God's kingdom. Jesus has come to establish his kingdom. But we discover it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of saved sinners. At this moment in the kingdom, our goal is to see as many join his kingdom as possible through forgiveness of sins and faith in Jesus Christ because he's going to grow up And some 30 years later, he's going to bring this kingdom to to complete and total victory by dying on a cross. And at that moment, when his death was finished, his kingdom was secure. All victory was achieved in that moment. Death, done. Sin, over. Satan, a wuss. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Um, Satan, a pansy. I don't know if that's any better. All victory on the cross. It's over. Nothing else to do. And he raises three days later, and he spikes it in the end zone, if I can say it that way. Just complete and total victory. The enemies had no chance. And now he says, come and join me. I've got a kingdom that will never end and a salvation that will never go away. All you must do is trust that I am the king and have come to redeem you through my death and my resurrection. Thank the Lord Jesus did not come to establish a fancy religion. A religion is a, a, form, a, a formula or a formulaic way in which we can get God to do what we want. We can gain his, his blessing and we can live a respectable life. Jesus did not come and invade uh, human history in order to establish a religion for, whereby we can discover the way in which we get God to do our bidding and we can live some sort of respectable life. On the same token, Jesus did not come to provide us the satisfaction we so desperately desire. That is, maybe a means to experience a form of spirituality uh, to sort of atone for what we see as our misdeeds so that we can live as we like. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Now I don't feel so bad about what happened in college. And so I can live my life in peace however I want. A king does not rule that way. Jesus did not come to establish a religion so that we can manipulate and gain access to God to get our agenda done. And God did, Jesus did not come to merely provide our satisfaction, a way to atone our guilt so that we can live the life we truly wanted to live. Jesus is a wrecking ball on religion. He completely devastates it because he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. What do you do in religion if the, all the requirements are fulfilled? Somebody comes in, you know, you're supposed to do this. Yeah, Jesus took care of it. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if you know this, but one of the rules is, yeah, Jesus did all that for me. You're going to want to check with him on that. You think I'm kidding. Satan does this to us all the time, doesn't he? Hey, uh, you know, you're really, uh, you're really supposed to be doing that better. 
people down at church knew what was going on here, they probably wouldn't even let you in. And our response, yeah, Jesus took care of that, so why don't you take a hike? See, see, Jesus is a wrecking ball on religion. He fulfills the requirements of the law, and he redeems us and gives us his righteousness. How much more righteous can you get when you're in Christ? You can't, because he gives you all of his righteousness. So religion is kind of a, a silly notion. He also is a complete destroyer of the kingdom of self because he says, come, follow me into a life of righteousness, a life of holiness, and a life of carrying a cross. I'm sorry, what? He said, come, follow me, and you will drink the cup I drink. He didn't come here to give us the skipping through the tulips life we've always desired. He came to give us a cross because he knew that life in him was the only way to truly achieve any form of satisfaction. He destroys religion. He destroys the kingdom of self. And he says, listen, come to my kingdom and receive salvation. Last place I want you to look in Luke chapter 2. After Simeon had prayed his prayer and uttered to the glory of God that salvation now had arrived for all people. Verse 33, the child's father and mother. Did you read that? The child's what? Father not male babysitter and mother. The child's father, Joseph, and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And Mary, guess what? A sword will pierce your own soul. This is no cakewalk. And Mary and Joseph understood this is more about having a baby and the joy that comes with that. This is about the kingdom of God and the salvation of God now invading the brokenness of the world. God says to Mary, Mary, thank you for having this baby. Here is the grace you have received. You carry the king of the universe. Your own soul will be pierced. And God comes to Joseph. He says, Joseph, I need you to father this child as your child. But really, all he needs is your birthright. He has a better father, Joseph. But he needs your birthright, and he needs you to be the father who would grant him your birthright. Knowing he has a better father, he will serve more closely. And what does Joseph say? Thy will be done. Our Savior is here. As a father, I can't imagine. Can you? I mean, come on, guys. Can you think about it? Can you imagine that? Raise this child as your own, knowing when he's older he will serve a better father. And Joseph says, bring it on, my Savior is here. The king has come. It's not about a baby. It's about God's kingdom. It's about a Savior. I just want to ask you this question as we prepare to close, is this. The kingdom of God has showed up. The Savior of God has showed up. And if you ever asked yourself this, that Mary and Joseph would have had to ask themselves throughout all of this, the turmoil that this would cause is this. Given the fact that Jesus showed up as King and Savior, what has God called me to? He didn't call me to be religious, because he took care of it. He didn't call me to serve myself. There's no satisfaction there. He called me to follow this Savior. And what has he called you to?
maybe you've never thought about that, and so that's a hard question to answer. It would be worth jotting down and saying, you know what, I need to pray about this this, this week. That God might move in my heart and say, listen, I have saved you unto this purpose. What has God called you to? Why don't you stand with me? I want to give us a moment to pray along those lines together. As the Christmas season gets busier and busier, if you're like most of us, you will have less and less time to sit and meditate on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So maybe in just these few minutes, this is an opportunity for us to quiet our hearts. There may not be another chance till next Sunday for you to just stand and be quiet in the presence of God. And today I'm just asking you to think, what has God called me to do? What has God called me to since the King and the Savior has come?